A word of caution. This episode contains depictions of murder and crime scenes that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A doctor's wife is murdered in her home, and police immediately zero in on her husband as a suspect. But was the real killer really a man in the neighborhood who was known to have done odd jobs for the victim? Years later, the case is still ongoing, with the doctor's attorney claiming DNA evidence will point to the real killer. A young woman is driving home from a late-night shift when she goes missing. Her car is found running with the lights still on and the driver's side window rolled down. Was she the victim of a blue light bandit, or much worse? Both of these cases took place in the 1990s in the Charlotte area and featured victims named Kim. Only one case has a clear resolution. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 68, The Murders of Two Kims from Charlotte. Today, I'd like to start with a look at the murder of Kim Thomas, a crime that has left an entire city divided on who was really responsible and still remains unsolved. July 27, 1990, started out like any other day in the Friedland Thomas House in the Cotswold area of Charlotte. Dr. Ed Friedland, a 33-year-old kidney specialist, had coffee with his wife, 32-year-old Kim Thomas, before heading off to work around 7.45 a.m. Kim had planned to spend the day with their adopted 10-month-old son. The couple had moved to the area a few years earlier from New York and had happily gotten settled into their home full of large windows and light on a private wooded lot. When Ed Friedland returned home later that night, around 9.30 p.m., he entered an oddly quiet house. He heard a noise from their son's bedroom and was surprised to find the infant alone in his crib with an overflowing diaper. He put the baby back down in the crib and went to look for his wife. As he entered the dining room, he found Kim lying on her back, bound with what appeared to be handcuffs. She was not moving, and there was blood on the floor, wall, and her head was also covered in it. He retrieved his son, entered the master bedroom, and immediately called 911. An article that ran in the July 31, 1995 issue of the Charlotte Observer ran a graphic of the layout of the Friedland Thomas home in regards to where crime scene evidence and Kim's body were found. Investigators believed the attack began in the master bedroom where she was handcuffed. There were smears of blood on the sheets, along with blood drops on the floor between the bed and the doorway. There was blood on the light switch, the bureau, the closet door frame, and the edge of the door. There were also smears of blood inside the master bedroom closet on a pair of green surgical pants and a white sock. There were more blood drops on the flagstone foyer, suggesting someone had traveled through the area while bleeding. On the door frame between the dining room and kitchen, there was a spray of blood about five feet inches off the floor, matching up with Kim's height. There was blood smeared on the dining room wall, 
including a bloody hand mark with four long fingers. Kim was wearing a white, long-sleeved nightshirt, saturated with blood and hiked up to her waist. There were more bloody smudges found in the home office, on the drawer handles of a desk, and fingerprints left in blood on envelopes. Whatever the killer was looking for, they left behind Kim's pocketbook and billfold. Police also found shoe prints in the bedroom, foyer, den, kitchen, and dining room. They featured wavy lines, such as the kind that might have come from a dockside or boat shoe. Ed Friedland later told police he had tried to call Kim that afternoon, but she hadn't answered. He also called her before he left for home, and again, there was no answer. As he spoke to police outside their house the night Kim's body was discovered, a neighbor and friend of the family, Nancy Verudo, told police she knew who was probably responsible for the murder. She said a man had come through the woods near the Friedland Thomas house, and Kim had hired him to clean off her deck chairs and their flagstone patio. Nancy had been wary of the man and warned Kim, but the young mother had brushed off the concerns and said she paid him in cash. The man's name was Marion Gales and he was known to do odd jobs around the neighborhood. Nancy had also been trying to reach Kim all day. They had made plans to take their kids to a local pool that afternoon, but when Nancy didn't hear from Kim, she assumed her son must have been ill and they decided to stay home. Kim missed an appointment at a local salon, and the babysitter she'd hired called the house several times trying to make sure she was still needed. The sitter received no responses and left messages on the answering machine. The autopsy showed how brutal Kim's attack was. Her neck had been sliced from front to back. She also had a number of smaller cuts on her face and different parts of her body. She had large black and blue bruises on her elbows where she must have fallen backwards while handcuffed. She was wearing a gold necklace with a diamond pendant, a gold bracelet, and one gold earring. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Police wondered what the motive could be. Nothing appeared to have been taken from the house. The morning after the murder, the brother-in-law of 28-year-old Marion Gales, the handyman Kim had hired to do work around the house, phoned police to tell them he thought Marion was responsible for Kim's murder. In a series that reporter Elizabeth Leland wrote about the case in July of 1995 for the Charlotte Observer, she shared the following information. Marion's brother-in-law said the man, who also went by the nickname Poole, was not acting right. An anonymous caller told the police Poole was seen wearing gloves the night before Kim's murder, telling the caller he was going to the Churchill Road area to do some work, which was code for breaking into houses. Marion Gales lived about five and a half minutes from Wendover Road to the Churchill Road area where Kim Thomas lived. He had previously been convicted of shooting a woman in 1979, not far from Churchill Road, in a botched home invasion attempt. The woman survived and told police she had seen the man hanging around the neighborhood before. Marion Gales' sister told police her brother had a cocaine habit and needed to be off the streets. When police interrogated him, he denied any involvement in Kim's murder. They took samples of his hair and saliva at the time. Investigators did not believe he murdered Kim. They said they didn't find any scientific evidence in the house linking him to the crime. Why would a convicted thief break into a home, brutally kill a woman, and then take nothing? 
An article that ran in the Queen City Nerve pointed out that there were no signs of forced entry in the house and the security system hadn't been tampered with. Instead, police zeroed in on Dr. Ed Friedland as a suspect. An anonymous Crime Stoppers call came in reporting that the man was having an affair, and it was one of many. Kim's family knew the couple had had their ups and downs since they first met while Ed was in medical school and she was working as a stockbroker, and the marriage would have difficulty surviving. Over the years, Kim had received an undergraduate degree in psychology from the University of Rochester, a master's degree in music, and also worked as a voiceover artist and a broadcaster for the Financial News Network in Miami. She served on a task team for creating new policies for independent adoptions in the Mecklenburg Department of Social Services. She had also helped set up her husband's practice when they moved to Charlotte. After their move to the area, she had seemed happy and content after the adoption of their child and found joy in volunteering with the local chapter of the National Organization for Women. The autopsy suggested Kim had died before she even had breakfast that morning and she was murdered in the nightshirt she wore to bed and was still wearing one of the earplugs that she normally wore when she went to sleep. Did someone really break in and murder her right after her husband left for work, or was she murdered before he left for work? But then the other question is, could a man really murder his wife, put the family dog in the infant's bedroom, and then leave the home for more than 10 hours? Police felt the scene was too staged and organized to be the work of a drug-addicted thief. Investigators believed Kim had been handcuffed while she was still asleep, as there was no blood found underneath the handcuffs. Ed Friedland had also acted strangely after the murder, referring to Kim's body simply as the body or the crime scene. He also said something about needing to get on with his life. His wife had been murdered less than 24 hours earlier. On October 9, 1990, Ed announced a private $25,000 reward fund organized by his wife's family and friends. In July of 1994, police arrested him for the murder of his wife. He was freed on $300,000 bond. He resigned from his medical practice at Carolina Nephrology Associates just a few months later. The case heavily relied on the state's key forensics expert, Dr. Michael Baden, director of the New York State Police Forensic Sciences Unit. He had been hired by the CMPD to review the autopsy findings. Police believed Kim had been murdered before 7.30 a.m. based on the condition of the body, rigor mortis, and skin discoloration and temperature. Dr. Baden agreed with this finding. But he couldn't be more specific about the timing, and in a pretrial hearing, said he couldn't say with a reasonable degree of medical certainty that the killing occurred before 7.30 a.m. A judge ruled his findings were unreliable and prevented his testimony from entering the record on the case. Six days later, prosecutors dropped the charges against Dr. Ed Friedland. The story did not end there, however. In 1996, Ed Friedland hired high-profile defense attorney David Rudolph. You might recognize his name from the Michael Peterson and Ray Carruth cases. They filed a civil suit against Marion Gales, 
David Rudolph wanted to present a public examination of the investigation of Kim Thomas's murder and the evidence police may have ignored about Marion Gales as a suspect. Finding Marion Gales guilty wouldn't put him behind bars for the crime, however, but it would help exonerate the doctor in the court of public opinion. In October of 1997, a jury awarded Ed Friedland $8.6 million in punitive damages in the civil suit, despite the fact that the jurors knew Marion Gales didn't have that kind of money. But they did feel it would vindicate the doctor, who had lived under a cloud of suspicion since the death of his wife. Ed eventually moved out of state with his son, started up a new practice, remarried, and had other children. In July of 2008, Marion Gales was arrested for the murder of a pregnant homeless young woman named LaCoya Monique Martin. His DNA linked him to her body. He admitted to having sex with her, but denied killing her. He then decided on an Alford plea, admitting there was enough evidence in the case to find him guilty. He was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and in 2009, his sentence was extended under the North Carolina Habitual Felony Statute, as he had been arrested nine times for various crimes. His anticipated release date is 2025. In December 2022, David Rudolph made headlines again when he asked a judge to order the CMPD to release details on the Kim Thomas murder. He said he had been told by an unnamed CMPD homicide detective that investigators had matched DNA from the crime scene with Marion Gales. In response, the CMPD denied the allegation. An article that ran in the Charlotte Observer on February 28th of this year reported that a Superior Court judge limited the release of DNA testing to the victim's extended family and their attorneys. The general public will not get access to those results until December 31st. The Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department put out a public statement that said, this case is assigned to our cold case unit. As with any other case, the unit continues to utilize new technology to test evidence collected from the scene. As a result of this technology, detectives have developed additional leads to look at in this investigation. Because this case is still open, we cannot comment on what the evidence is at this time. And now, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing creative nonfiction, I encourage you to check out the Creative Nonfiction Essay Contest over at WOW Women on Writing. The mission of this contest is to inspire creative nonfiction and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, all ages are welcome to enter, and entries must be in English. Your story must be true, but the way you tell it is your chance to get creative. WOW is open to all styles of essay, from personal essay to lyric essay to hybrid essay and beyond. The deadline for the latest creative nonfiction contest is October 31st. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and check on the contest tab. 
And now, let's get back to the show. Last August, the Investigation Discovery Network show People Magazine Investigates aired an episode that was familiar to many Charlotte area residents. The case was also featured in a 2008 episode of Forensic Files titled Traffic Violations. At the time, the story of 26-year-old Kim Medlin's murder on the way home from a late shift at work stunned the community of Monroe, especially when law enforcement zeroed in on the person responsible for taking her life. Kim Medlin was a woman who enjoyed horses and farming and, by all accounts, was happily married to her husband, a man named Bridger Medlin. The two were working hard. Bridger as a disc jockey, and Kim as an employee of a livestock auction house and a server at a gentleman's club in Charlotte, because they were saving money to buy their own farm. On Easter weekend of 1997, Bridger had a job DJing at a prom in South Carolina until late on the evening of March 28th. Kim was working a shift at the men's club in Charlotte, where she did not get off work until well after 2 a.m., Kim called Bridger from her red Jeep Wrangler on the way home, and he told her he'd wait up for her. But he fell asleep after their call, around 3 a.m., not realizing she hadn't made it home. At around 4 a.m. the morning of March 29th, a local resident found the red Jeep pulled over on the side of the road on Old Charlotte Highway, just outside of Monroe, with its lights on and the engine still running. The driver's side window was down, and the driver was not in the car. Bridger Medlin woke up a short time later and tried to call Kim when he realized what time it was. He was shocked when a male voice answered the phone. The man identified himself as a police officer and notified Bridger that Kim's car had been found on Old Charlotte Highway and she was not with it. Panicked, Kim's husband hung up and rushed to the scene. Kim's purse was open on the front seat of the car and her driver's license was missing. Volunteers and friends of the Medlin family immediately began searching the area for Kim. Her body was discovered later that evening on a deserted cul-de-sac about a mile and a half from her Jeep. She had suffered a brutal attack, and her face was scraped and bloody. The autopsy later showed she had been strangled and her cervical spine crushed. The base of her skull was fractured. She had not been sexually assaulted. A key piece of evidence on the scene was a shoe print left on the reddish dirt near the body. It matched a print that was also found on the back of the white sweatshirt Kim was wearing. A crime scene technician took an impression of the shoe print. Police immediately began to worry that Kim had been murdered by a blue light bandit, or rather a person masquerading as a police officer who pulled over unsuspecting victims. The fact that her driver's license was missing and her driver's side window was down indicated she must have been talking with someone who asked for her identification. They also knew a distinct pattern on the shoe print found at the scene, featuring a chevron pattern, looked like it belonged on a shoe sold at a local store that serviced only one customer, Monroe Public Safety, otherwise known as the police department. The shoe print was a size eight and a half. During this investigation, police with Monroe Public Safety learned Kim had been frightened on her way home from work a few weeks earlier when a car began tailgating her on Old Charlotte Highway, flashing its lights at her. She saw two police officers in a parking lot and pulled over to ask for their help. They were able to locate the car that had been harassing her and gave it a warning. 
It appeared to be a person who thought Kim had driven behind them intentionally with her bright lights. They followed her in an act of road rage and backed down once they were confronted by the police. The officers talked amongst themselves to keep an eye out for the red jeep with the young blonde in it, as she often drove that route late on her way home from work. Police set to work trying to determine who on the Monroe Police Force wore a size eight and a half shoe. They narrowed it down to three different employees. One was an officer named Roger Griffin, and he'd been one of the police officers Kim talked to during the road rage incident. But on the night of her murder, he was on duty at a local firehouse and had been in the presence of many other witnesses. Another officer with the same shoe size was also eliminated as he was on duty in the presence of other people. The third suspect was 24-year-old Josh Griffin, the son of Roger Griffin, and a young man who'd worked as a jailer with the Union County Sheriff's Office and had recently moved to a patrol officer position. A look at Josh Griffin's whereabouts on the morning Kim was murdered provided an emerging picture of what must have happened. The Charlotte Observer put together a timeline of that night in their June 3, 1997 issue. Josh worked a second job as a security officer at the Monroe Mall. He wore his police uniform and drove his patrol car during his job. After he got off work around 10.30 p.m., he told investigators he drove around, stopped at a parking lot at a local restaurant, where he read in his patrol car for a bit. He also made a couple of traffic stops at this time, although why he was doing this when he was off duty is unclear. He stopped two different females, both in their 30s, and gave them warnings. He also stopped a man around 1.20 a.m. to give him a verbal warning about not having headlights. Kim would have been leaving her job at the men's club in Charlotte around 2 a.m. Around 2.10 a.m., Josh said he was in the parking lot of Ron's restaurant when a man approached him, requesting help with his car that was in a ditch nearby. Josh used his personal cell phone to call the Monroe police dispatcher. He said he went home after that, around 2.30 a.m. The State Bureau of Investigation began working the case alongside the Monroe Police Department just a few weeks into the investigation. A few weeks after Kim's murder, police performed a search of Josh Griffin's home, which he shared with his twin brother. They took personal items, uniforms, vacuums, and samples of blood, saliva, hair, and fingerprints. He said he no longer had the boots he'd been wearing around the time Kim was murdered because he'd thrown them away after they got battery acid on them. He was arrested on May 31, 1997. The trial was moved from Union County to Rowan County. During the trial, a Monroe police officer testified that Josh Griffin and other police officers frequently searched license plate records of attractive women they saw while on patrol. Prosecutors theorized Josh had known who Kim was based on her distinctive vehicle and pulled her over in the early morning hours after his shift at the Monroe Mall. He put her in his patrol car and drove her to the deserted road where she was later found. Her wrists had been restrained, likely with handcuffs. He tried to make sexual advances, which she refused. When she attempted to get away from him, he tackled her to the ground, held her down with his boot, and then crushed her windpipe, possibly with his police baton. During the trial, which lasted two months, jurors heard that Josh had talked about the babe in the red jeep before and said that he was going to get her license tag number. He tried to deny that he'd pulled Kim over that night, but when investigators found physical evidence of Kim in his patrol car, he retracted that statement. 
He'd also told a friend and fellow patrol officer he had stopped that girl on the night of her death and asked her to have a seat in his patrol car. The jury found Josh Griffin guilty of first-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. They could not agree on the death penalty, and instead he received life in prison. At his sentencing, his attorney asked if his client could speak. He turned to the side of the courtroom where Kim's family was sitting. Kim's mom and dad, I'm sorry for your loss, he said. It's been a nightmare, but I didn't kill your daughter. There's a lot of people that believed I did, and there's a lot more who know that I didn't. There's a lot of people who got up here and said a lot of bad things about me. These people over here believed in me, he said, pointing to his family and friends. And everything they say is true. My mom is the first one to say it. I'm not an angel, and I'm not perfect, and I'll be the second one to say it. I'm not these people. At that point, the judge interrupted him and asked the sheriff to take Griffin from the courtroom. Two things happened in 1999. One, Josh Griffin filed for an appeal for a new trial, arguing that Superior Court Judge William Helms committed errors during pretrial motions, trial, and sentencing. Second, Kim Medlin's mother, Sharon Heaston, sued the city of Monroe on behalf of her daughter's estate, requesting more than $10 million in damages. Her attorney at the time, Tom McNeely, told the Charlotte Observer, When Officer Griffin stopped and detained Kim Medlin, he was following informal customs and policies that the police department had allowed to develop and exist. In response, the city manager of Monroe at the time, Jerry Cox, said, The city considers the Medlin case closed. The criminal justice system and the judicial system have completed the process, and to be quite candid with you, I see no relevant value in trying to keep a tragedy ongoing. According to the Observer article, after the murder, city and police officials pulled CB radios from police cruisers, reiterated the policy against misusing city equipment, and required officers to issue warning tickets for traffic stops. Computers that were installed in vehicles also allowed supervisors to track who used the system and why. In May of 1999, a federal judge dismissed the wrongful death portion of the civil suit, but allowed the lawsuit's federal civil rights claims to proceed. In December of 2001, the Medlin family reached a $750,000 settlement agreement with the city of Monroe. The city's attorney said the city regretted that Medlin died as a result of an encounter with a police officer, but the city did not accept responsibility for Medlin's death. In February of 2000, the North Carolina Court of Appeals upheld Josh Griffin's murder conviction. In 2005, Josh Griffin told an agent with the State Bureau of Investigation that he had indeed killed Kim Medlin, although he tried to minimize his involvement. He said he'd owed drug dealers money for steroids and was told he could pay the debt by pulling Kim Medlin over and turning her over to the drug dealers. He said he then killed Kim while the drug dealers were holding them at gunpoint. However, he was unable to describe the dealers. He also said he'd thrown the boots he'd been wearing during the murder into a retail store's trash bin and cut up Kim's missing driver's license and flushed it down a toilet. Josh Griffin continues to serve his term at the Hope Correctional Institution, a medium security prison near Rayford, North Carolina. I want to mention one more thing. While I was doing research on this story, I noticed two different letters to the editor published in the Charlotte Observer by a man named William Smith. 
On February 3, 1998, in a letter titled, Observer Goes Overboard in Medlin Case Coverage, he said specifically, In response to portraits of Josh Griffin, predator or victim, all, there you go again, rubbing our faces in the Kim Medlin murder as if this were the most important case in America. The point of oversaturation was reached long ago. When there are far more important events to report, why is the observer so consumed with a strip club waitress allegedly killed by a small town cop? True crime author Kathy Pickens did point out in her book, Charlotte True Crime Stories, that the media seemed to focus on Kim's part-time job at the Gentleman's Club and rarely mentioned her day job at the auction house. Yes, she worked as a server in a gentleman's club, but that shouldn't have been the focus of the story. The focus of the story was that she trusted the city of Monroe and had even spoken to police officers about her concerns driving that stretch of highway late at night. She tried to do everything right. She called her husband when she left work and while she was driving. She trusted a police officer when he pulled her over, as we are trained to do, never expecting to be kidnapped or assaulted. I believe that is the moral of the story. This is not to say all law enforcement officers are bad apples, because they are not. The city of Monroe quickly worked to solve the case even when all signs pointed to the perpetrator being one of their own. There are criminals all around us, in the medical community, in law enforcement, in schools, and in universities, everywhere. The civil lawsuit Kim's mother brought against the city of Monroe was not about money, as she told the Observer, but about changing procedures within the department that needed to be fixed. I personally believe it brought about the necessary change, but unfortunately, it took someone being murdered before that happened. Josh Griffin's colleagues and his father probably saw him as a young rookie officer who behaved immaturely from time to time. They did not see what he was capable of until it was too late. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missingintheCarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. This episode was researched and written by me, Renee Robertson. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.